Well, I wonder, um, as you think about your relationship with the Lord, I love how Charles uh, d- described his approach to church as being procedural, <laughs> as, as a, a going through the motions, doing certain things uh, apart from a relationship. When you think about how you relate to God, what biblical images really resonate with you? For many of us, it's the idea that God is our creator and that we're his creatures, or that he is our father and we've been adopted into his family, or that he is a, a rock that we can stand on, or our redeemer who rescued us from, from slavery, or our savior who won the victory for us, or our shepherd who leads us along the path of life, or our king. But I I wonder how many of us think about God as judge. I got to admit to you that as, as a pastor, as someone who teaches the Bible, I talk about God as judge, but I often talk about God as judge in contrast to another image of God. I often say, yes, God is judge, but what you really want to know is that he's a father and he's a shepherd. It's almost like I'm kind of embarrassed about the judgment of God. And as I've been thinking about what's happening in our world and I've been thinking about what's what's happening in some situations in my life, I've actually come to take great comfort in the fact that God is judge. And that God being judge is not something that I just need to talk about in terms of the bad news of the gospel before we get to the good news. But loved ones, I'm here to tell you today that the fact that God is judge is really good news. Because he's a really good judge. And so the title for today's message is The Judge of All the Earth. And this is not a familiar passage of scripture. This is a a time of prayer between Abraham and the Lord about the city of of, of Sodom. And and Abraham is going to call God the judge of all the earth. And he is going to ask that God would would do what is right, that he would be a good judge. And of course God was going to do that. So let's bow our heads and, and pray as we open his word. Heavenly Father, We thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that we can call you King. We thank you that you are our Shepherd. We thank you that you are our Savior and our Redeemer. But God, we also thank you that you are our Judge. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to to hear from your Word today so that we could better relate to you. And, And Lord, uh, for those of us who are struggling with what is happening in world events or what is happening in our, in, in our lives personally, Lord, that we would look to you who is the judge of all the earth and that we would trust and know and believe that you will indeed do what is just. You will do what is right. And so, God, we pray for your help and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So our passage begins in verse 16 by saying that the men set out from there. There was the front door of Abraham's tent. And there was the place where Abraham had made a meal for these men. And the, these, these men actually were, were representatives of God himself. We know from chapter 19 verse 1 that there's two men who are called angels. And we can assume that this third man is most likely the angel of the Lord 
And so they've enjoyed a meal. They've shared this announcement with Sarah that she is going to bear a child. And she laughed and God said, no, but you did. No, but you did laugh after she tried to uh, deny it. And they announced that Isaac is going to be born. But then they move on from there. And as we so often see in God's word, is that a message of hope and of life is delivered almost simultaneously with a message of death and destruction. So we have this announcement of a birth, but then also this looming coming death for the city of Sodom. There is light and there is also darkness. So as they are on their way, verse 16 says, the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. He's continuing his loving, proactive hospitality. He's welcomed them into his, uh, into his camp. He's fed them, and now he is walking them on their way. And then in verse 17, we're given this inner dialogue uh, among the triune God, this sort of soliloquy where, where God says in verse 17, uh, then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. There are, there are four things that I want us to, to think about as we reflect on this passage. The first one is this, is that God reveals his acts of judgment to his people. God doesn't want to hide this from Abraham. And we see this pattern in God's word, that when God is going to make a judgment, he he lets his people know why and what he is going to do. And that is very, very important. He's, he says, I need to tell Abraham about this because I've promised to make him a great nation. And I've, I've promised that if through him all of the nations will be blessed. He's going back to how this whole story got started in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Where it says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. That's what he says in verse 17. And, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God wants Abraham, as Abraham's uh, a chosen one, to be able to understand how God's justice and how God's judgments work. Because if Abraham and the nation that is to flow from Abraham doesn't understand justice, then they won't be able to show the rest of the world how justice works and what justice means. So God reveals to his people his acts of judgment. He goes on in verse 19, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. This is why God reveals his acts of judgment, so that Abraham would be able to teach his children and his household about justice and about righteousness, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. 
Notice how Abraham has, has, has been chosen by God, but he's also been commanded by God to teach justice and righteousness. And that as Abraham obeys the command, it unlocks the blessing of the promise. So he's chosen first, grace comes first, but the work of teaching and being a blessing to the other nations and and showing the way of the Lord, justice and righteousness, that obedience unlocks the blessings of the grace of being chosen. Now why is this good news? Why is this important for us to understand? God reveals his acts of judgment to his people Vody Bauckham was very helpful uh, in, in, in understanding this. This is why it's so vitally important that God would reveal his acts of judgment is because we live in a broken, sin-cursed world. And bad and difficult and tragic things happen all the time. And we could easily think that God is always doing acts of judgment at every moment in time and every natural disaster or every, uh, every uh, fortunate circumstance, we could wrongly interpret as being the judgment of God. If, if God didn't tell this to Abraham, we, might not, we, not be, we may not be talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Because the people at the time might have just been like, wow, remember when fire and sulfur fell? I wonder what that was about. Just like, oh, hey, remember when there was all that water? I wonder, I wonder what that big flood was about. Now you see, God reveals his acts of judgment to his people. He revealed it to Noah. So we know that the flood was an act of judgment. He revealed, he revealed the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in advance to Abraham so that, so that we would know that it was an otherwise, we would just be interpreting it ourselves. We would be like Job's friends. Remember Job's friends? All these bad things are happening to Job. Were they acts of judgment on Job? No, they weren't. This is why the revelation of God is so important. We see this in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira. It was revealed to Peter, this is what's really going on. This is why. This is why Ananias and Sapphira die. That's an act of judgment. But when James dies... And he gets beheaded by Herod. That's not an act of judgment. That's just living in a sin-cursed world. That's part of God's plan. Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's talking about communion, he says, for this reason, some of you have died. It was an act of judgment. You see, if God doesn't reveal it, then we're just guessing. If good things are happening to me, does that mean that I'm doing good? Or if bad things are happening, does that mean that God is judging? No, that's not how it works. God reveals his acts of judgment to his people. You see, Proverbs 28 verse 5 says, Evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Evil men look at circumstances or situations and they say, well, this must be the judgment of God or this is how justice needs to work out. Evil men do not understand justice. And unfortunately, in the church today, we are doing a lot of listening to evil men and to evil women who have different ideas about what justice looks like or what justice ought to be. 
But evil men and evil women do not understand justice, but only those who seek the Lord understand it. So we've got to make sure that we are seeking the Lord, and as we seek him, we will understand what true justice and righteousness looks like. For the original audience, the people of Israel, they also had a revelation from God about acts of judgment. What's all, what, why'd the Nile turn to blood? Why are all these frogs and these gnats and these sores? How come all the livestock are dead? Is this just random? No, 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 no. God revealed this is an act of judgment. Why did the walls of Jericho fall? Why were, the, why were the armies of Israel so victorious against all odds against the Canaanites? Was it because of military strategy? No, 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 no. It was an act of judgment. God reveals to his people his acts of judgment. And that is a good thing because it clarifies things. And we as New Testament believers, there's an act, there's an act of judgment that is coming that has been revealed to us. In, in the book of Revelation, we are told that, that judgment is coming. Revelation 20, 11 and 12, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, I love this, earth and sky fled away and no place was sound for, found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Loved ones, God reveals his acts of judgment to his people. He did it for Abraham. He did it for Moses. He did it in the New Testament. And he, loved ones, he's done it for us. There is a day of judgment that is coming and this needs to be on our mind as we're thinking about how we are to live our lives, how we are to relate to our neighbor. Those neighbors are going to one day stand before that throne of judgment. So that's the first thing we need to understand is that God reveals his acts of judgment to his people. Secondly, God judges after thorough investigation. God judges after thorough investigation. In verse 20, it says, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Twice there, God talks about an outcry, an outcry. This is reminiscent of Abel's blood from Genesis chapter 4 of verse 10, where when God is confronting Cain, he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. There was an outcry as a result of Cain's sin, and there is an outcry that is coming as a result of the sins in Sodom and Gomorrah. God says that their sin is very grave, that it is serious, that it is heavy. Uh, this is happening in a city. Cities are a concentration of people, and when you have a concentration of people, things get multiplied. There's a multiplication of productivity and industry, which leads to a multiplication of wealth in cities. There's also a, there, there's also a, 
a, a concentration of creativity. So you have a multiplication of, of the arts and, and entertainment and, and culture. And these are good things about cities. But you also have a concentration of evil and sin. And there are sins that happen. And there is a concentration of evil that can take place in a city that, that, that gets multiplied that, that may not happen in other contexts. And so in Sodom and Gomorrah, in these cities, their sin has become very grave. And then in verse 21, God says, I will go down. Again, very similar, just like the outcry, similar to Abel's, very similar to the Tower of Babel. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Wasn't that tall of a tower? They were aiming for heaven, but God had to come down to look at it. But this language here sort of strikes us as off. It's almost like we want to correct God in how he's describing things. Because in in Genesis 18 here, he says, I will go down. And he says, I will know. And when we approach God's word, you know, with a relative understanding of systematic theology, we're like, God, why, why did you say it like that? Because you say, I will go down, but I know you're omnipresent. You are... You are everywhere. Omni means every. Multiple. He's he's present everywhere. And and, uh, omniscient, science means knowledge. Omni means all. So God has all knowledge. So why does God need to go down when he's already there? Why does God need to do some research so that he would know if he already knows everything as being an omniscient God? Well, God is communicating these things to Abraham so that Abraham would understand what? That he would understand that God judges only after a thorough investigation. He's using anthropomorphism. He's he's talking about himself in human terms so that Abraham would know that God doesn't make snap judgments. God's not reactionary. God doesn't just have sort of a knee-jerk reaction to whatever, uh, whatever he's heard or whatever he thinks. God is present and God knows. He conducts a thorough investigation. We live in a world of snap judgments. You watch a four-second video on Instagram. You read a six-word headline on your news feed and our mind is already made up. I don't need to do any more research. Not so with God. God is present everywhere. And God is all-knowing. We are neither of those things. And when we make snap judgments, we're trying to act like God. And we're not. This is why God as a judge is good news because he's a better judge than we are. We are prejudiced. What does prejudice mean? It means to prejudge. We judge too quickly. We look at the surface and we, 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 make, a, we, we, we make a prejudice decision. We prejudge. We have very little information. Even when we do lots of research, we still have very little information compared to what God has. And God wants to let Abraham know, listen, I'm on this. I'm going down there. 
I will know. I don't have to go down to be anywhere. I've never learned anything ever. I already know. I'm already there. But he's reassuring Abraham. He's reassuring us. God follows due process. Again, as we think about the ultimate judgment in Revelation 20, look at what it says. It says that books were opened. And that the dead were judged by what was written in the books. There, there's, there's records being kept. And God is not going to judge on a whim. It's all being recorded. All of the evidence has been compiled. It's all written in those books. Because God is a good judge. A good judge. So God reveals his acts of judgment to his people. God judges after thorough investigation. Then thirdly, God hears the humble and bold prayers of his people. God hears the humble and bold prayers of his people. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the men, the two men, we know from Genesis 19, one, the two angels have gone on their way to Sodom, but now Abram, Abraham is having this one-on-one conversation. It says that he's standing before the Lord. So God has now revealed himself and his will and his act of judgment to Abraham. So God has spoken to Abraham, and now Abraham is going to speak to God. This is how relationships work. This is how our relationship with God works. God speaks to us through his authoritative word. He reveals to us his will, including his acts of judgment. He speaks a lot of things to us as well. And then as we hear his word speaking to us, we then open our mouths and speak to him. This is how a relationship with God works. And this is what is modeled for us here in Abraham's relationship with God. I love what it says in verse 23. As he's standing there before the Lord... It says, then Abraham drew near. He drew near. He wanted to be close to the Lord. Now, Abraham has some ideas about how this whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing should play out, and he has some questions. But notice, it's not, and this is, this is how prayer works. Prayer is not trying to get us, to get God to draw near to us and get in line with our will It's about us drawing near to God to get in line with with his will. God can't change. So prayer can't change God's mind, but prayer can change us. And and prayer can help us understand and see what God is doing and how he is working. God hears the humble and bold prayers of his people. He drew near. This is the language that the author of Hebrews taps into in Hebrews 4 verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Verse 23, he drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Notice that Abraham is already talking about Sodom and Gomorrah being swept away. Did God tell Abraham that he was going to sweep Sodom and Gomorrah away? 
Nope. All he did was say, I'm going to go investigate. I will go down and I will know. But Abraham already knows enough. He already knows what the city is like. And he knows that, that, that judgment is coming for this city. Destruction is coming for this city. So Abraham is already assuming that there's a sweeping away that's going to be happening. So Abraham asks, okay, so let's say hypothetically that there's 50 righteous people there. Now, I got to admit to you, I've been reading the Bible cover to cover for the last 20 or 25 years. And, and so I've, I've read this passage a number of times before. I've preached on it before. I've studied it before. My, my understanding was that, hey, God, I thought Abraham was asking, hey, God, if there's 50 righteous people, would you let those 50 righteous people escape before you swept it away? How many of you thought that's what he's asking? Because that's what I thought he was asking. Would you let those 50 people get out of the way? Thanks, my father-in-law is the only other person who had that interpretation. (laughs) Would you just let the 50 people escape and then sweep the place away? That's not what he says. Look at what he's asking. Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? He's not saying, let the 50 people go and then destroy it. He says, don't destroy it at all if there's 50 people there. That's a big, that's a huge difference. It's a huge, huge difference what he is asking for. What gives him the ability to pray with such boldness? Look at verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What gives him boldness to ask this question? His understanding of God's character. When we understand who God is, we can pray boldly. When we pray boldly for God to act in in accordance with who he is and his character. So he prays boldly, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He prays with boldness. He prays and he he understands, just like the original audience understood as it said in Deuteronomy 32, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his way is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. This is God's character. We can pray in alignment with God's character. That gives us boldness when we draw near. Similarly, the psalmist says in Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This is who God is. This is why it's good news that he's a judge. It's because he always judges with justice and with righteousness. He prays in accordance with God's character. He prays with humility. He prays with boldness. Jump down to verse 27. He says that I am but dust and ashes. Verse 30, he says, let not the Lord be angry. Every time he opens his mouth, he's saying something to express his humble position between a holy God. And look at God's response. In verse 26, God says, And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place 
for their sake. And this leads us to, to the fourth thing that I want us to, uh, to understand from this, this passage. It's this, that God will spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. God, as a just judge, as a righteous judge, makes it clear in this passage that the presence of the righteous will lead to the sparing of the wicked. Then Abraham starts talking God down. (laughs) So he got him to commit to 50. He starts going down by fives, 45 and then 40. And then he thinks this might take too long. I don't want to overstay my welcome. He he jumps now. He he goes down by tens. So he gets from 50 to 45 to 40. Now he goes by, by tens, 30 to 20 to 10. And the truth remains the same. If there are, again, if there are 10 righteous people living in Sodom, I will spare the whole city. It's not that I will let the 10 righteous people escape. He says, for the sake of 10 righteous people, I will spare the whole wicked city. And then before they get any further down, from five or to one, Verse 33, the Lord's basically saying, okay, this conversation's done. It says the Lord went on his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And God went on his way. He went on his way to do what? He went on his way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He went on his way to do what a good judge would do. And because God destroyed the city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah, and because God is true to his word, we know that there were not 10 righteous people living there. Now, some people would say, well, there might have been three or four people living there, the righteous people living there, because Lot was there, and and Lot was considered a righteous in uh, in the New Testament. And so, but remember, if Lot was truly righteous, Lot wouldn't have just escaped. If Lot were truly righteous, Lot wouldn't have just escaped. Lot's righteousness would have spared the whole city. And if you read Genesis chapter 19, Lot is not behaving in a righteous way. And in Genesis chapter 19, verse 6, it says that God was being merciful to Lot. Lot was not dragged out of that city, and he was literally dragged out of that city. He wasn't dragged out of that city because he was righteous. He was dragged out of that city because God was being merciful to him. If Lot was truly righteous, that city would have been spared. But the truth remains the same. God is willing to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. This is true about how God judges. The presence of even a minority, a small minority of righteous people will lead to the sparing of a majority of wicked people. This is how God chooses to judge. If there are righteous people, God will spare. The problem is, Where are the righteous people? 
Fast forward to to the prophets, different city, not Sodom and Gomorrah, the city of Jerusalem. Look at what Jeremiah says in chapter 5 verse 1. Run to and fro in the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. Jeremiah is being told by God, run through the city. Try to find one righteous person. Because if you find one righteous person, I'm going to set the whole city free. The, The judgment that is coming for all of the sin and all of the idolatry and all of the wickedness, And all the social injustice, if you can find one righteous person in the city, I'll pardon the whole city. God will spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. This is how God's judgment works. Similarly in the book of Ezekiel. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. This is God's commitment. He's looking for the righteous minority, a minority of one. And if he could find one, he would spare the whole group. But God says, but I found none. In Sodom, there wasn't 50 righteous or 40 or 30 or 20, 5, 10 In Jerusalem, there wasn't 50 or 45 or 40 or 30 or 20. Not even one. But this is the principle that God is committed to. He will spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. But the truth is, there are no righteous. As as Paul quotes the psalmist in, in Romans 3, no one is righteous. No, not one No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So we are all part of the wicked majority. But God's judgment says that he will spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Romans 3 goes on to say, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Loved ones, we have an opportunity as the wicked majority, we have an opportunity to be spared for the sake of the righteous. Not 50 righteous, not 45 or 40 or 30 or 20 or 10, but one. First John calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. The only righteous one. And because God has committed to judge in this way, God has committed to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. That if you, by faith, place your trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous, you get to escape the wrath and the judgment and the punishment that all of us deserve worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. 
All of us deserve judgment. No one is righteous. No, not one. But there is one. And not only did he live a perfectly righteous life, but that he himself, as the only righteous one, bore the penalty, the punishment, the destruction for all of our evil, all of Abraham's evil, all of Lot's evil, evil, all of my evil, all of your evil. That he experienced the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could be made righteous. So that we can come before that throne. And even though there's lots of detail written in those books about bad choices and bad decisions that we've made and unrighteous, wicked living, even though there's all kinds of evidence to condemn us and God judges with a thorough investigation, even though all of that is written in those books in Revelation chapter 20, there's another book. The book of life. And those who have their names written in the book of life will escape that ultimate punishment, that ultimate judgment. Is your name written in that book? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, in the one righteous? This is how the judgment of God works. He will spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Don't delay Put your faith in him today. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Receive the inheritance of eternal life and escape the judgment that looms over us all. Jesus Christ, the one righteous, has suffered and died for you so that you would be spared. Let's bow our heads and and, and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that we can take comfort in calling you judge. Thank you that you judge perfectly and righteously. Thank you that justice and righteousness are the foundation of your throne. Thank you, God, that the presence of one righteous makes it possible for the wicked to be spared, Lord. So, God, we thank you that we can come before your throne, regardless of what has been written in the the books, keeping a record of all of our sin. Thank you that we can come before your throne because our name is written in the book of life. Thank you that we can draw near before your throne, your throne of judgment. And that rather than receiving punishment, we can receive mercy and grace. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Hallelujah. We praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.